Good morning, Bridges Church. How are you guys doing? Yeah? Some crazy weather today. Uh, Growing up in Spain, being used to rain pretty much most of the year, hearing rumors about a hurricane in California, I was very skeptical. But then I got on the freeway, and don't quote me on this, but I think I saw a canoe in the passing lane. But glad you guys were able to make it through the weather. Good to see you guys were able to make it. And those who weren't able to make it, now we're praying for you. Um, But I'm Ash. I get to serve as the pastoral intern here. Very excited to be with you guys. As many of you know, I was gone for a few months over the summer. I was on a mission trip serving over in South Asia on a team trekking to many villages in the jungle, in the mountains, and in the plains. Going to share the gospel with many people of different religious backgrounds, including Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and even Sikhism. But one conversation that stands out as we get into the message today was with a woman who had just finished offering incense to an idol. And after she had finished that, one of my friends struck up a conversation with her, asked her a question, trying to get to the root of why she did what she did to kind of explain her beliefs. And he asked her this to start. Do you talk to your gods? And she was a little confused by the question. She answered, no. And then he pressed a little bit further. He said, do your gods talk to you? And again, confused by the question, she said, no, they don't. And then he asked one more question. He said, do your gods care about you? And you could tell she was very puzzled by the question. Why would these gods that she worships for being great and powerful care about her, an insignificant human being? And he proceeded to share the story with her about the God who created the heavens and the earth, who knows the number of hairs on our heads, who communicates with us and has made a way for us to come back into relationship with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus. This story hinges on the fact that God speaks and acts and cares. And that's what we kind of talked about a little bit last week when Pastor Cliff preached through Psalm uh, 19, where we learned about how God speaks and reveals himself so that we can know his glory. He reveals himself so that we can know and worship his glory. We talked about the stars. He speaks through the stars. And as um, Gary read this morning during worship, verses 1 through 4. And we see that it's not about us. God's glory that we're going to be talking about today is not about us. It's so much bigger than each and every single one of us. It's something that we get to explore and experience and take with us. So the passage that we're going to be working through today is Psalm 67, which says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your ways may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Dear God, I pray that you would um, go before us, that you would speak to us through your word, um, teach us about your glory, and that as we gaze at you in your majesty, that we would walk away from this message changed and encouraged, learning more about you as you've revealed yourself to us, and living in um, the life that you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Did any of you guys get to go to the meteor shower this past weekend? Okay, let me rephrase the question. By a raise of hands, who knew there was a meteor shower this past weekend? Okay, a couple of you guys. Good. Um, I got roped in to go in this past weekend to Joshua Tree very late at night. 
um, as we do in college sometimes, uh, to watch the meteor shower. And let me just say, it's one of the only times I've been stuck in traffic at 1 a.m. in the middle of nowhere. Seems like all of Southern California was going to Joshua Tree. But it was well worth the drive. It was absolutely gorgeous. I'm going to see many meteors fly across the sky um, every single minute. And just going to see a sea full of stars. And space has always amazed me. Um, scientists calculate that there are more stars in space than grains of sand on all the beaches on all the Earth. That is vast. And not only are there that many things up there, but each star is an average of 30 trillion miles apart. Space is huge. That's insane. And we can barely travel to the next nearest planet. There's so much in space that even with the most advanced telescopes, we still cannot see and we'll never get to see. So we see that it wasn't created for us. If it was, we'd be able to see and experience and touch all of it. But there's so much we'll never know about. It wasn't created for us. It was created for God's glory. And that's going to be a repetitive theme in today's message. The chief end of all of creation is to glorify God. So what does that mean? I want to unpack that before I start using it 200 times in the next 30 minutes or so. To glorify something means to uphold it, to admire it, to praise it. But to glorify God is different from glorifying anything else. To glorify a person or a movie or a coffee shop means to lift it up above the rest, making it great. But God is already great. You don't need to do the work of raising him up. He's already there. As such, to glorify God means for him to be seen for who and what he already is. That's what it means to be glorified when it comes to God. I love this quote by John Piper that kind of explains God's greatness in our response. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, he writes, The really wonderful moments of joy in this world are not the moments of self-satisfaction, but of self-forgetfulness. Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. As such moments, we are made for a magnificent joy that comes from outside ourselves. And each of these rare and precious moments in life beside the canyon, before the Alps, under the stars, is an echo of a far greater excellence, namely the glory of God. Everything God has created is about and is itself his glory. And to miss this is to miss the greatest enjoyment of the greatest excellence. So that's going to be your first point. God's creation contains and proclaims his glory. We see that this story and this psalm begins with God. He's not a distant and mysterious God, but a God who has made himself known through what he's made. Uh, Psalm 67 verse 1 we read, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. God begins this story through his revelation and intervention. And I'm going to read it again for you guys. Psalm 19 verses 1 to 4. It's kind of repetitive. It's important. Let's take something from it. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor their words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So we see that for something to contain God's glory goes hand in hand with proclaiming his glory. Take a composer for an example. You might say that the glory of a composer is their composition, or the glory of an artist is their artwork. It's not as though the composition is greater than the composer or the artwork is greater than the artist, but it's because it's great and it's glorious, it's actually revealing the greatness of the composer, of the artist. 
In the same way, it's because the heavens are God's glorious handiwork that they proclaim his glory. Just as the greatness of a composition proclaims the greatness of the composer. So this is what it means for God to be glorified through what he's made. He is seen, his majesty is seen for what it already is through what he's made. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where he wrote, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So through God's creation, we learn about his divinity and his power. Again, going back to last Sunday, Pastor Cliff talked about the sun and all of its power, bringing light and warmth to the world and giving energy for plants to grow. This vast celestial body was created by God simply by speaking. God is great and unimaginably powerful in ways we cannot fully comprehend and grasp. So we see that's because God's creation contains and proclaims his glory, that likewise, as God's creation, we too are made to contain and proclaim God's glory, but in a special way. We see that God did something special with his creation of humanity. Let's imagine that there's this man named Bob, and he's a clockmaker. Now, going back to our illustration with the uh, composer or the artist, you might say that this guy's clocks, they speak of his greatness, his artistic abilities, his tact, his skill. But Bob also has a son, Tim. Now, in the same way, his son is also going to speak of Bob's greatness, but in a special way, because he's in the likeness of his father. In the same way, humans, we're not just the same as the rest of creation, that we speak of God's greatness just as his creation. He did something special with humanity by making us in his own likeness, similar to that of a child. But that means we're held to a high responsibility to reflect him well. As we read in Genesis 1, 27 through 28, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So we see that we are created to know God and be with him in a personal way. Considering we are created in his image as image bearers and intended to proclaim God's glory, this comes with a higher responsibility for us as humans to obey and glorify God, living in such a way that he is known and seen for who and what he already and truly is. And this is our first core value. You can see on our fancy little acronym we have here, third core values, bringing glory to God. Pastor Cliff wanted me to put that little plug in there, so that's for you, Pastor Cliff. You're welcome. Um, and we read, uh, continuing in this point, in Isaiah 43, 21, we learn about the people God formed for himself that they proclaim his praise. This is central to the purpose of humanity in their creation. So the question we have at this point is, what does it mean to be created with this glory of God's image and for the purpose of glorifying him with it? It's not just something that we sit on. It's not something that we just have. We're created to do something with it. It's something that we have to explore and experience and take with us. We say that God intends his glory and his presence to be with us and longs for us to take it to all the earth, commanding us to multiply and spread out. So first, this happens through numerical multiplication, literally making more image bearers, spreading God's image. And that's why he gave this command to the first human beings, literally to raise up new generations of image bearers and for them to spread out. But secondly, and even more significantly for us today, once again, we see that this isn't just something we have, it's something that we do. 
We're made to be the creators, inventors, and explorers, and ultimately worshipers that we are designed to be. Literally, to create a culture of worshiping God around the whole earth. Now, just a little side note. This is why I challenge you to cultivate the heart of an explorer. When we settle for where we are and what we know, we're saying that God's glory isn't interesting enough to further explore. Even now in a fallen world, there's so much we can experience of God's good creation and learn about him through what he's made. So, a side note, never stop exploring. It honors God when we marvel at his handiwork, just as it honors a composer when you listen to more of their compositions and enjoy them. It honors an artist when we look at more of their art and enjoy it. So go for walks, make trips, watch the sunrise, watch the sunset, enjoy the stars, watch a documentary, enjoy God's creation, it brings him honor. But coming back to this point and bringing it to a close, we see that we are created in God's image to glorify him through our affection, our admiration, and our activities. We are created in God's image to glorify him through our affection, our admiration, and our activities, and to take that to the ends of the earth. So as God's creation, we should contain and proclaim God's glory. And that is not optional. That's our second point. God's glory cannot be contained or silenced. This was the primary sin at the Tower of Babel. Humans tried to create glory for themselves and refused to obey God and spread his glory to all the earth. In Genesis chapter, four, uh, chapter 11, verse 4, we read, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So instead of growing horizontally to all the earth, they grew vertically, constructing a tower for themselves. They no longer tried to reflect God's image to all the earth, but instead tried to make an image, a name for themselves that would be revered and marveled at. But God's glory will not be contained and silenced, not even by our sin. Our sin has left us unable to enjoy God's glory in his presence. That's true. As such, we have become separated from him and deserving of his wrath. But he is a solution for our sin. It won't stop his purpose. And he's made a way back to himself, to the enjoyment of his glory. Continuing in Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2, we read, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your ways may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. In order to fix our mess and disobedience, God himself must intervene. He must take the initiative. We need his grace. It's what we don't deserve. Without him, we are dead in our sin, caught in the death trap of worshiping things less than what we are intended for. Paul explains this in Romans 3. 10 and 2, 12. We see this is where we're all at. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So it's not as though us here in this church are the smart ones who figured it out, found our way to God, and everybody else has just not. This is where we all are at, apart from the intervention and initiative of God in our lives. God must intervene and reveal himself to us, putting us back on track to something great, exploring and experiencing his glory and taking it with us. So to do this, we need more than just his revealed glory through creation. I love the stars, I love the mountains, I love the ocean. But that simply tells us about the creator that we have guilt 
with, the creator that we've sinned against. It itself does not tell us how to be right with God, how to come back to God. And that's why Pastor Cliff last week talked about how God also speaks through his word and through his son. We need more revelation than just creation to be made right with God. We need God to intervene, to change our hearts, and to transform our lives. We need the king to have grace with us and to shine his face upon us. And this is something that is so much more vast and complicated than we can comprehend apart from God. We can't even understand it without him explaining it to us. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 2, 11-13, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So we can't even understand this apart from God. He needs to send his Holy Spirit into us so that we can understand what he's given. And it's something that we could never earn. As explained in Romans 11, 33-35, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? This is something we could never earn. We could not give anything in exchange for this. The king's face has shined upon us. He has offered us his grace. And this too is for his glory. Because God in what he does, once again, reveals more of who and what he already is. We learn about God through what he does. We learn he's merciful, he has grace, he's kind, he's loving. He's most glorified when we understand thus that we could never earn this. It's not just him taking us from zero to one. The more guilt we realize we have, negative one, he took us all the way up there. And he's most glorified when we understand the great work that he's actually done. So we need to understand the gravity and depth of our rebellion against him. We see that we are experienced to worship and enjoy God's glory, but we turn to things that pale in comparison. Now, that's something that uh, my generation at least talks about a lot. Why is God so judgmental? Why is payment for sin so serious? Why does he send people to hell for sin? But we fail to see what sin is. And that's one reason that we won't go on sinning in heaven. We'll see it for what it truly is, the way that God sees it, how serious it is. But it's not just about the action committed. The payment for an action has to do with who you're wrong against. Let me just give an illustration. Let's imagine that tonight I'm going to the movies, I'm riding with a friend, he's driving, and I lean over and I smack him in the face. Don't do this. Um, what's he going to do? He might ask me, Why, why'd you do that? that? That wasn't cool. But if we go back a lot, he'll probably forgive me. We'll still go to the movie and have some fun. Now, he needs to go back a different way, so let's get back home. I need to catch an Uber. So I'm riding the Uber driver. Uh, in the car, and the Uber driver's driving, and I lean over, and I smack him in the face. Don't do this. Uh, what's going to happen? He's probably going to kick me out of the car. He's not going to keep driving me, right? Now, let's imagine that I'm walking down the street, and I see a police officer. I walk up to the police officer, and I smack them in the face. Don't do this. Respect authorities. What's going to happen? Uh, this is going to be more serious. I might get arrested. You see, the same action against a higher authority has more serious consequences. Now let's imagine that the police officer lets me go eventually, and the very next day, a king of the country is visiting my city. I get to sneak up to 
this king, and I walk up, and you know what's coming. I smack him in the face. Don't do this. What's going to happen? This is me serious. I might even get shot. I might lose my life for this. So once again, we see the higher the authority wronged against, the more serious the consequences. Now, for wronging against a king, an earthly king, I might lose my life for this one simple action. How much more against the king of the universe? What could be more serious than losing my life? That's how serious sin is. It's not just about what we do. It's about the holy God that we sin against each and every single day. And that's what we do as people designed to worship him. When we turn to things that pale in comparison to give our attention and affection and admiration to, we don't just smack God in the face, we spit in his face each and every single day. That is the guilt we have before this holy God. And that's why sin is serious. Now that reminds me of one day that we were trekking in Nepal. Um, we stopped to rest beside this house and struck up a conversation with this guy. And a couple minutes in, he explained that this building was an idol factory. He led us inside, and we found about a dozen men uh, crafting idols, chiseling little heads and arms and torsos. Um, they had these little pieces of metal between their toes, and they'd use their hands to chisel away at them. And this is one of the most shocking things for me, getting used to life in Nepal. Just seeing shrines at many city corners, temples on many of the high places, and people worshiping idols. For us in the West, it can be easy to scoff at these people and think, how foolish are these people crafting the gods that they themselves will worship? But here in the West, we can be just like those men, making the gods that we ourselves worship. An idol is anything that we worship and make the ultimate enjoyment of our lives. Anything we live for. Anything that receives our attention and affection. Pulling us from the worship and admiration that only God deserves. That can be a person. That can be a career. That can be a goal, a dream. It can be anything, even good things, that pull us away from the affection, admiration, and worship that only God deserves. We get caught in our lives building stuff and collecting stuff which receives our attention, affection, and admiration. God, if present at all in this mix, gets the leftovers. How often do I get so caught up in my life that I realize, man, it's been two weeks since I opened my Bible. I don't know the last time I prayed. It can be so easy to give God the leftovers when he asks for all of it. We can't make the mistake of thinking that because we worship God, we have no idols. Throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament, we read about kings who did not fully forget the Lord, remembered who he was and what he did, but still they had idols. They were not fully devoted to God, and as such, did evil in his eyes. We too, if we're not careful, can be not fully devoted to God, setting up idols alongside him, distractions that pull us from the attention and affection that he commands and expects of us. So we realize that our hearts are idol factories apart from Christ. We create the gods we worship, just like those men in that room. We realize that we are created for nothing less than the glory of God. And when we give up God's glory to worship anything less, we spit in his face and are deserving of his eternal unending wrath. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. So what are we exchanging the glory of the immortal God for? What are we thinking about? How often do we stop and give thanks to God? It's far too easy to make a God in our own image rather than changing and turning to and obeying the God in whose image we ourselves are created. So as such, we in the West are just as lost in our idolatry as the South Asian world. We who surround ourselves in materialism, the search for prosperity and popularity and power, as the South Asian world following after idols made of wood and stone. But this won't stop the spread of God's glory, not here in the West and not in South Asia. That's the gravity of our treason. It's true, it's real, it's deep. Yet God has done something to reveal more of who he is, his greatness, his power, his grace, to reveal his glory. As Paul explains in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So again, this is nothing that we could ever earn or give an exchange for. God gives what we don't deserve, revealing who he is, his mercy and his grace and his love, revealing his glory. As we read in John 3, 16 through 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus has brought salvation into the world. God is moving and will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus will finish what he started. God will accomplish his purpose. And what is this purpose? Spreading his glory to the ends of the earth by redeeming people from every nation and people group to explore, experience, possess, and reflect his glory. So now the mission is not primarily to multiply image bearers to all the earth. There are already people all over the earth. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not as though God's purpose and plan has changed. That can't be changed. We can't derail God's plans and purposes. We realize that now we are in a fallen world, and now God is going to be glorified and accomplish his ultimate purpose by redeeming image bearers from the ends of the earth, every nation and tribe and tongue. And that's going to be our third point. How does this happen in the world? How is God glorified? We see that God's glory is spread through his image and message. Jesus is accomplishing this through his people. It's not just that he began the work. Yes, he brought salvation to the world by living the perfect life none of us could live, dying the death that we deserve, paying the price for our idolatry and rebellion. Once again, that's us spitting the face of God. He paid the price for that by dying and then rose again so that anyone who believes in what he did and calls on his name and turns to him can once again worship this glory that we were made for and be in relationship with God. Jesus began the work, but he didn't just walk away and leave it to us. He's going to finish the work. Jesus did this amazing thing. He died, he rose again, and then he comes back to his followers to tell them this. Now imagine that. Someone very important to you, a guide in your life, a shepherd, dies and comes back and gives you this message. How intently are you going to listen to that? How is that going to shape your life? That's what happens here. Jesus gives these final words. So listen intently. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, just a few things to unpack here. First, it's not the great suggestion. It's a command. Jesus begins by saying, look, this is my authority. And he says, a command. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize, teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. There's a part for us to play, but it comes with a promise. Jesus says, I will be with you as you do this to the end of the age. So it's not as though we're finishing what Jesus started. Jesus is finishing what he started through his people. He works as we obey. So continuing in Psalm 67, 3 to 5, we read, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. God is in control. Let all the peoples praise you. God is above and guiding the nations. Let all the peoples praise you, God. And this is something special about Christianity. It's been about all people from the start. Where other religions might be specific to a certain heritage or geographical location, Christianity has been about all people from the very beginning. Now you might ask, what about the Israelites? Feels like God had something special going on with them, maybe there was some favoritism. And it's true, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be a great nation. Lots of special stuff happened there that we need to know about. We see that this came with the purpose of the Israelites being a blessing to the nations. Because ultimately it was through the Israelites that God brought Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, into the world for the sake of the nation, salvation of people from every nation and tribe and tongue, redeeming them into his kingdom. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 10, 11 through 15, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So first we see that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. God wants people from every nation and people group saved into his kingdom. In order for them to be reached with his salvation, to receive the gospel and believe in him and call on his name, they must hear. To hear, someone must go and reach them. And for someone to go and reach them, they must be sent. So missions, this is why we talk about goers and senders. You can't have one without the other. For the gospel to go from where it is to where it's not yet reached, someone must go. And for someone to go, they must be sent. And that's what's special about this church and churches in general. That's what the local church does. They send goers, building bridges between where the gospel is reached and where it's not reached. And this reminds me of one day that we were trekking in Nepal in the plains. We went to this village of farmers. Um, my national partner was able to go to the square of the village, and many people gathered, and he shared the gospel with them. And the Spirit moved. Roughly 80 people asked him to keep on talking about Jesus, to learn more about the salvation, how they could have their sins forgiven, and have this hope for life after death that they'd never heard about in any of their local religions. But we soon figured out that this entire village was illiterate. They're all farmers. Not one person in the village could read. So the Bibles we had to offer them in their own language were of no use. They would never know the words written in the Bible unless someone comes and lives with them, reads it to them, and teaches them. 
that was a hard village to leave that night. How could I leave knowing that the work there wasn't finished? But that's just it, isn't it? I'm just a laborer. The salvation of the nations is not any single one of us. This is the work that God is finishing, and we are laborers in his field. He uses some people to plant seeds, some to water, and some get to be there during the harvest. But he will finish what he started. And it's because we know that the Spirit works there, opening these people's eyes to their need for salvation, softening their hearts to receive and believe the gospel, that we know he will finish the good work he started there, and that one day people from this village will be in heaven with us, worshiping before the throne. And that's a beautiful thing. So we see that we are to stand in the gap between where the gospel has gone and where it hasn't. Thankfully, we're not on our own. We are farmers, uh, sorry, we are among laborers in God's field, and each of us has a part to play, as we see with the example of Paul and Apollos, uh, where Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paul, uh, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So it's not as though we are co-workers with God, doing our part and just hoping he does his. But so often it can be easy to feel that. Okay, God, I did my part. Now could you do your special thing? Okay, God, I, I've done it. Now when are you going to do your thing? So often it feels like that. But that's not the way it is. He's not that partner in group projects that we're just having to check in repeatedly. I remember freshman year at CBU, I had an intercultural studies class. And towards the end of the semester, we had to do a big group project and presentation in front of the whole class, so much fun, uh, about a people group that we learned about, um, their religious context, their history, um, their geography. And so we're in a group of about six people. And there's always one, there's always one person that you need to check in with. Hey, we have a week left, could you do your part? Hey, we have a day left, could you add in the part? We're assuming you already did. Hey, we have an hour, where's your piece? And then we show up to the classroom, give our presentation, and they're not there. So we need to make something up on the spot. There's always one in the group project. And if you're in a group project, you don't know who it is, it might be you. <laughs> There's always one. But that's not God. He's not our partner in the gospel in that sense that we're doing our part just hoping he does his. He's our boss, and everything that we do is under him, is a part of what he's doing. There's nothing we do that's independent of him. And that's a big relief. That means that we're called to obedience, faithfulness, and faith. Nothing we do is in vain. So continuing Psalm 67, verses 6 to 7. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let the ends of the earth fear him. The earth has yielded its increase. God is moving through the world. He's saving people. God is blessing as people say yes and obey and fulfill this command. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. May that be our vision. Jesus will finish what he started. He's the Lord of the harvest, and he will bring that harvest. God will save people from every nation and tribe and tongue. We cannot prevent that, just as we ourselves cannot make that happen apart from him. So either we're going to be a part of that and glorify God, or be like the people of, people of Babel who say no and fulfill our lives with lesser things, and then he'll be glorified in his judgment on us. Now, an example of this is seen clearly in the story of Esther. Now, many of you might be familiar with the story, but she, uh, this is a young Jewish woman who's in the unique position of being married to the king, and all her people are about to be wiped out by this edict that this evil man convinced the king to sign. And Esther's cousin, Mordecai, explains, look, God has put you here for a reason. 
You have the chance to do something and save these people. But he explains, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We cannot prevent God doing what he wants to do. If we don't do it, he's going to bring someone else to do it. But perhaps we've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Each of us has a part to play. So it's not a question as to whether we dare to move, but as to whether we dare to stay still and silent. God shall bless us and be with us as we obey his command. He promised is to be with us and take his glory where we go as we obey his command, starting where we're at and then going wherever he leads. So the question is, will we spread horizontally or will we build a tower? Are we building fences between us and other people or bridges to reach them? The fences we build between us and other people are fences between them and the glory God has revealed in and through our lives. The bridges we build to reach them are bridges on which the glory he's revealed in and through our lives can travel across. And this was actually one of my favorite things I got to see in Nepal, the bridges. It made me feel like I was in a movie like Kung Fu Panda. It was so much fun walking across these, um, either going over bodies of water, just deep valleys, um, just amazing going to the middle and just looking at the view all around. It was absolutely gorgeous. Many of these were very long, but they weren't built in a day. Bridges are not built in a day, and neither are towers. Towers aren't built in a day either. And this leads us to our fourth and final point. Will we build a bridge or a tower? The work will be finished through us or in spite of us. God's plan is for his glory through his image to be present through redeemed people from the ends of the earth which he will ultimately gather to himself. We get a promise and picture of that in Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. From the beginning, God created humans to be with him and for him to be with where they're at, to dwell among his people. But we are separated from him by our sin. But through the gift of salvation through Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, which simply means he took on the wrath that we deserve for spitting in God's face, he paid the price for that on the cross. Through his payment, we are brought back into relationship with the living God to worship him and enjoy him forever. Continuing in Revelation 21, 3-5, we read, and I heard a loud voice coming from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Creation will be made new. There will be no more separation. All nations will be represented and healed. No more division. We will have everything we want and need fulfilled in the presence of God, him filling our joy and every desire, each moment more exhilarating than the last as we dwell with God and come to know him more each and every moment. Continuing in Revelation 22, 1-5, we read, 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielded its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, for his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, and for the Lord will be their light. They will reign with him forever. So the sun that we talked about earlier and that you guys heard about last week, in all its glory, that was just a reflection, a shadow of God in his glory. We won't even need the sun anymore because God himself will dwell with us. The sun was just a shadow of the real thing. And going back to this first story we talked about, this idol, this God that this woman prayed to who didn't know her, who didn't care about her, didn't speak with her. We will be with the living God who knows us, cares about us, has demonstrated that, has revealed himself to us, and we will be with him and talk with him forever. This is the plan of God, the ambition he has for all people, the invitation he holds out to you and to me. So hear the invitation and allow it to change you either as a believer, someone who's already responded and has received it, to see it through new eyes, to come back to this heart, someone who just heard it for the first time, or for someone who's never heard it before, or never responded. As we read in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, come. God has a heart for all people. He has a heart for you. So if you're hearing this and you've not responded to this call to repent of our idolatry, to come back to him, to find forgiveness of sins, a clean slate, and a new life, something real and good and beautiful, enjoying the glory our hearts were made to revel in, then I challenge you to call in the name of Jesus who lived the perfect life we could never live, died the death that we deserve, and rose again so that anyone who calls on his name and turns to him can come back to this worship of the one true God, the only one who can fill and fulfill our hearts. As we read in Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with your joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So if you're not a believer, you're watching online, you're just kind of thinking through this, I challenge you to call in the name of Jesus. Now, if you are a believer, I challenge you to ask yourself, am I building a tower or a bridge with my life. Going back to Revelation 22, 17, it said, may the one who hears say, come. Am I saying, come? I've heard. Am I saying, come? Am I using my life to build a bridge or a tower? Am I living to advance my own name and fame? Or am I building bridges to those who do not know Christ? Now, I want to unpack that. How do we build bridges? I have three practical applications. First, Commit to praying for our missionary of the month. They are reaching the unreached and are serving as a bridge for God's glory. By praying for them, you are helping to build that bridge. Plus, this month it's my family, so definitely commit. <laughs> Second, this week do some research on a foreign country you know very little about. Using the Joshua Project website, which I've included in your notes, it's joshuaproject.net, very easy to use. You can just find any country you can learn about the percentage of Christianity in that country. You can learn about how the mission is advancing 
and you can learn about unique challenges and struggles to pray for. So find the percentage of Christianity, the work that's happening there, and challenges and struggles to pray for. I want you to share that with somebody, whether that's at home or at school or here at church next week. Um, I want to hold you to that. And then third, and most significantly, have a bridge moment every single day. Each day, do something that builds a bridge between you and someone else. That can be as big as sharing the gospel with a friend over coffee or as small as calling up a family member you haven't talked to in a long time, complimenting someone at work. We are ritualistic creatures. We find that the way we live our days is the way we live our life. Every single day, we are either building a taller tower or a wider bridge. So have a bridge moment each and every single day. So to bring the message to a close, summing it up, we see that through Jesus' sacrifice, we get to explore and experience God's glory. This is something too great to keep to ourselves, and we couldn't stop its spread even if we tried. So let's turn from our idols and distractions to explore God's glory and worship his majesty, and let's take it with us. Let's build bridges, take part in the work that Jesus is doing and will finish, enjoy the harvest that he will bring, where there will be a multitude of people from every nation and tribe and tongue gathered before the throne, enjoying his glory and presence forever. So when someone asks you, what was the message about today? Here are going to be the three takeaways that are going to be really easy to sum it up. First, forsake idols. Turn from these distractions that pull us from the affection and admiration that only God deserves. Second, worship God. Walk with him. Come to know him more. Explore his creation. Worship God. And third, build bridges. Make connections between you and other people from where the gospel is to where it's not yet reached. There are many people who still, even here, have not heard the gospel clearly articulated to them. We cannot make the assumption that they probably heard it somewhere else. God works as his children obey. To forsake idols, worship God, and build bridges. Now to finish, I just want us to pray through this all together. We're going to have the Lord's Prayer up on the screen. If you guys would read it with me, and then I will close the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Dear God, thank you that you're a God who reveals yourself to us. We realize we are guilty of sin each and every single day, spitting in your face by turning to things that pale in comparison to your glory. Thank you for taking the initiative to intervene in our lives. Thank you for sending Jesus who lived the perfect life we could not live, died to pay the price for our sin, and rose again so that if we call on his name and turn to you, we can come back to the enjoyment of your glory forever and ever. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we would build bridges, spreading your glory to redeem people from every nation and tribe and tongue. Pray that we would not build towers with our lives, but that we would build bridges and take your glory with us wherever we go as the explorers, inventors, and ultimately worshipers that you've designed us to be. Please be with us as we go into this week. Help us to serve you each and every day by reaching the people that we have around us.
May your glory be spread and reach all nations. Thank you that we just get to be a little part of that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Ash.